There are four things that Brent Nesseth and First John have talk, talked to us about in the first couple weeks of our message. It's probably a slide we're going to see every week because this is the, the central thoughts of what are we going to learn, what things are we looking for in the book of Mark as we go through. We kind of changed the order up there, and I think we put the important one first. Who is Jesus? What did he say? What did he do? And how will the book of Mark affect the kingdom of God? Today's emphasis is going to center around item number three on the slide. I had it as number two in my notes, but number three on the slide. What did Jesus do? Pastor John said earlier he, that we're, we're going to talk a little, a little bit, we're going to talk a lot about Jesus' authority. There are going to be four areas that we're going to talk about in particular. We'll talk about them individually as we get there. There are other ways that he demonstrates his authority. He, he demonstrates his authority over the scriptures, in the forgiveness of sins, in healings, in casting out demons, and over all of creation in general. I'm a definitions guy. How do you define authority? Not necessarily Jesus' authority, but how do you define authority? Well, Webster says authority is the right or power to give orders, to make decisions, and to enforce, and be, enforce obedience. The right or power to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. How do you deal with authority? How do you deal with the authority figures in your life? A boss, a teacher, a co-worker, um, a spouse. How do you deal with that? I know some people deal with it very badly. Some people fight it. Some people don't obey it. There are a number of authorities that we have to obey. I think the number one authority we are going to talk about today um, is Jesus and the authority that he has in our lives. Two weeks ago, in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, 1 John, and if you guys don't know who 1 John is, that's John Paternoster. He'll tell you why. might not be the same reason we use but uh, First John spoke about how John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. If you remember, he used a quote out of Isaiah and a quote out of Malachi, or excuse me, out of Micah. Probably wrong on both of those. I didn't write it down. It's easy enough to flip back to it. I apologize.
I'm not going to find it right off the top of my head. Shoot me later. But he used a couple of quotes to, to support that. And then last week, Pastor Preston spoke on how Jesus was preparing for his public ministry. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, we, t- we saw Jesus' baptism. In verses 11 and through 13, we saw his temptation in the wilderness. And in his final declaration of the kingdom of God is at hand, in verse 15, Jesus is ready to begin his public ministry. So, today we're going to jump right in. You'll notice as I read the scripture and as you follow along, there's a key word, and we've already heard it a few times, the word immediately is used the source that I found used found, had 41 times the word immediately or straightway is used in the book of Mark. There are a couple of thoughts as to why that happens. One is, as you remember in Brent's introduction, uh, he talked about this is Mark's interpretation of Peter speaking all of these things back. Peter was very impetuous. What is impetuous? He always wanted to be first. He always had to run ahead. And he didn't always think things through before he did them or said them. That's one thought. The other thought is the urgency of Jesus to minister. Personally, I tend to think it's a little bit of both. Peter was, was, was all of those things. He always had to be first, if you remember some of the scenarios, running ahead to find out who was where, um, stepping out on the water, not being prepared for all of that. But I think more importantly is the urgency of the Scripture. Because of the shortness of time that Jesus already knew that he had here on earth to minister to the people that he was going to be able to reach. So, a little bit of Peter, a lot of the urgency of getting out the Scripture. As I said earlier, we're going to look at four different ways that Jesus exercises his authority today. So if you'll take your, your portion, your copy of the scriptures, whether that's written in the book, whether that's on your phone, on your tablet, and follow along with me, please. We're going to read Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 34. Beginning in chapter 16, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going a little bit farther, they saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, 
who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed Jesus. And they went into to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, and saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out in a loud voice, came out of him. And they were amazed. They were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, Who is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread across, spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever, and immediately they told her about told him about her. And he came and took her hand and lifted her up, and the fever left, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. A lot there. As I was writing this, I I wanted to say, what a weekend. But we know that the Sabbath in that time didn't fall on a Sunday, so it wasn't the weekend. It was a Friday and a Saturday. Or it might have just been a Saturday. We don't know. But as we start this portion in chapter 16 through 20, we're going to talk about first the calling of the first four disciples. If you want a bigger version of this, a more lengthy version of this, I guess I'll say it that way, you can go to Matthew's, uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. You can go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 2 to 11. Or you can go to John's Gospel, verse 1, 40 to 42. Remember, Mark's is the synoptic gospel. It might as well be your I remember in college, we always got the cliff note versions if we didn't want to read the whole chapter. Not that you don't need to read it all, but this is the, this is the short version. So if you want the, the longer versions, I gave you those. I can give them to you later again if you want them. But again, starting in verse 20, we see Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. He looks out to the water's edge and he sees Simon Peter and his brother Andrew fishing because that's what they did. They were fishermen. That was a pretty general trade of the day. And what does he say to them? He doesn't say, hey guys, what you got going on today? He doesn't say, hey, how about? 
He commands with authority, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. How do they react? Do they stop and think about it? Do they make excuses? Do they say, well, you know, let me, let me, let me, let me. No, they don't say, let me, let me. They immediately, immediately follow him. Those are the first two. As they walk a little bit further down the shoreline, the three of them encounter James and John, the sons of Zebedee. In the same manner, Jesus calls out to them, follow me. And immediately, they drop their nets at their father's feet, leave their father in the boat with the hired servants, and they follow Jesus. Now, one note here that I found in uh, one of the concordances that I was reading, it is thought that James and John are cousins of Jesus. This is just a side note. As their, their mothers were sisters. But again, all four of these men reacted immediately and followed Jesus without reservation. How does that relate to today? How does that relate to us as Christians? What are we supposed to do with that? Well, if Jesus is calling you to do something, you better do it. And you better do it now. Uh, there were other stories throughout Scripture of men who said, well, let me go do this, or let me go do that, and then I'll be happy to follow you. I believe his command is, take up your cross and follow me. Don't think about it. If Jesus is calling you to do something, do it. One of the, uh, one of the pastors that I follow is a pastor named John Bevere. And uh, he had a quote a couple, I don't know, probably a month ago um, in one of his, in one of his uh, messages that said something to this effect. It said, if you're trying to do ministry on your own behalf or another man is calling you to do ministry, you're going to fail. But if God is calling you to ministry, that's what you need to follow. Make sure it's God who's calling you, Jesus who's calling you to the ministry. This is where Jesus has demonstrated his authority to call men to ministry. And again, these are the first four disciples. I want to talk a little bit this morning about what is a disciple. Again, using the definition, he is one who has been baptized and is willing to take upon himself or herself the name of Jesus and follow Jesus. 
A disciple desires to become as Jesus is by keeping his commandments in morality and would... I've got a terrible misspelling here and I can't even read my own spelling. He would act as, a, as an apprentice and mimic his master. Every disciple of Jesus has three basic outlying characteristics. He is one who follows Jesus. Go back to the verse, follow me. He is one who is being changed by Jesus. I will make you, dot, dot, dot. And he is one who is joining Jesus in, his, in Jesus' ministry. He will make you fishers of men. He will lead you into an evangelistic ministry. Any of you have those characteristics in your life? I hope we all do. That's the first authority, authority to call men. The next one doesn't take as long to work through, but we're going to go there. In verses 21 and 22, we see Jesus and James and John and Peter and Andrew going to Capernaum. And it was the Sabbath. And on that morning, they entered the synagogue, and immediately, Jesus began preaching the word with authority. Anybody want to walk in here and try that? Just walk in and start preaching? They were all amazed at what he had done. He didn't speak as the normal speakers who came to in the synagogue, the scribes, because they just repeated the words that they had heard their masters say, the rabbis preached to them. Jesus spoke with the authority that was given him by his heavenly Father. All authority is given by Jesus. Jesus spoke with that authority. That's number two. The rest of them just take time to weed through, sorry. Again in verses 23 through 27, we're in the same setting. We are in the synagogue. And we see, again, that word, immediately. Verse 23 says, And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Let's look at this scenario a little bit. Jesus is standing in front of the crowd preaching the word. And then, out of nowhere, obviously he was there, so it wasn't nowhere, but out of nowhere, this deranged, demon-possessed man just blurts out 
What have you to do with us? And he calls him by name, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Again, referring to him by name. You are the Holy One of God. The demons even know who God is, who Jesus is. I can remember here at Calvary, it's been probably 20 years ago. This came to my mind yesterday while I was working through some of these. I remember Pastor Don was up here preaching on a Sunday morning. And uh, it wasn't a demon-possessed man, so don't go there, but it was, it was scary. I remember Pastor Don, and I think Brenda and I were sitting right over here, and this stranger, gentleman, not clothed like the rest of us, started walking down the main aisle. And I think Dara's nodding her head. She remembers. They were sitting up here in the front. And I can see Pastor Don's eyes getting about as big as, as serving plates. And no one is moving within the congregation. Honestly, I thought it was one of Pastor Don's jokes or one of his scenarios that he's just trying to play out. The guy came about where Carol's sitting here, a row behind the pattern osters, maybe a couple rows deeper than that, and just sat down for the service. If I'm Pastor Don and that happens, I'm probably freaking out too. If I'm Jesus and someone speaks out like this, I'm probably freaking out too. But Jesus, what does he do? He calmly rebukes him and says, be silent and come out of him. Now luckily, again, with Pastor Don's scenario, Nothing happened. The man sat down. We went through the rest of the service. Pastor Don came over to me afterwards. He goes, what is wrong with you? And I told him, I said, Don, I thought it was one of your ploys to get people to pay attention. He goes, I had no idea who the guy was. Scary, walking down the aisle. But we got through it because Jesus was, Jesus was involved. Back to the scenario we have here in Mark. After all of this, again, he rebukes him. He says, come out of him. The demon comes out. And what does he tell the man or the demon? We're going to go a little bit later in the verse. I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to wait on that answer. But he, he tells him to come out and he comes out. So again, that's... The beginning of number four, we're skipping around here a little bit of the authority Jesus shows. No, that's number three, but we're going to skip around. We're going to come back to it later because we have another scenario where uh, Jesus casts out demons. So he casts out the demon, and in verse 28 it says, And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee. How would that be? 
Jesus is performing the miracle in the church. Somebody hears about it. It's kind of like the sports athlete, the sports figure who, okay, some of you aren't going to know who this is, but Ronald Acuna Jr. Anybody know who Ronald Acuna Jr. is other than me? I'm seeing zero hands. Good. I can sell you whatever I want. Anyway, he's a, he's a ball player for the Atlanta Braves. Just this weekend, he set a new major league record of being the quickest player to ever hit 30 home runs and steal 60 bases in a season. Means nothing to anybody here but me, I know. John, you might know this one. You probably don't follow baseball. It's not the Lions. He's not going to follow it. They come next week. You're going to have trouble speaking next week, aren't you? <laughs> but uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. set a record. Everybody's going to want to go see Ronald Acuna Jr. play ball because he's done something that nobody has ever done before. Well, we're kind of in that same spirit right now with Jesus. He has never cast out a demon prior to this in his public ministry. Everyone is going to want to see him. Everyone is going to want to come and meet him. So verse 28 covers that. They want to see who he is. So after the, the service on that Sabbath, the five of them, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Jesus, probably shouldn't name them in that order. I probably should put Jesus at the beginning. They travel in the city and they go to Simon Peter's home where his mother-in-law lays ill with a fever. This is not unusual for this time. A lot of people had fever. A lot of people were ill. Um, not knowing exactly what she had, Jesus immediately, knew, Jesus immediately knew of her illness. It doesn't appear that anybody asked or directed him, but Jesus heals her at once because, because he was there and he met her need. He went there because of the faith of the disciples and what does she do? What is her reaction once she is healed? Does she just lay there and say, well, I need some more time to recoup? No. She immediately, immediately, again, begins serving the men. And this was Jesus' first reported healing of his public ministry. And it demonstrates his authority over illness. This last portion is going to take a little bit longer to weed out. I'm hoping I can get out of here by 11.15. Verses 32 through 34a. Already been quite a day for Jesus and the four disciples. As evening approaches, the whole city lines up at the door of Peter's house for healing from all sorts, all sorts of ailments and demon possessions. 
One of the books that I've been using in preparing for this message is a book called Plain Talk on Mark by Manford George Gutsky, who's a PhD. And on page 28, if you care, you don't have the book, I'm sure, but I'm going to tell you anyway. On page 28, the first two chapters read like this. This calls for a variety of techniques in healings. There are various ways of doing that. For instance, you could bring a person to a church service where I hear the gospel preached. You can do that in any way you can, but get the person there. If you have prayer meetings in your church, bring them to prayer meeting. But do not, do not mean to say that refers to unbelievers or people who are not church members. There may be people in church who are sick or harassed. They need to go to prayer meetings, and I need to bring them. I need to bring the sick, and not just the physically sick. I mean people who have jealousy, anger, people who have, who have hurt or, or are possessed with demons, who are constantly doing things that are foolish or wrong, but they are being harassed to do that. Those are the people who need to come in range of hearing the gospel. It is a sad thing when we stand back and wait for them to come to us. If I don't bring them, who will? If his followers had not brought them, the sick would not have been healed and the demon possessed would not have been free, set free. So these people who lined up at the door are not what we think of as the lame necessarily and the demon possessed necessarily or the uh, whatever else you might think. They may be people who deal with the same things that we deal with every day. Jealousy, anger, rage. I believe in my last message we covered about six or seven of those uh, things in our lives that we need to surrender to Christ. And those were the kind of people who were coming and standing at the door of Peter's home and were being healed of those infirmities in their lives. Yes, there were demon-possessed people there who had demons cast out. Yes, there were people with physical ailments that were taken care of. But that's not the only people that Jesus cares about or cared about. In verse 34b, he says, I'll read all of 34. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Why? Why did Jesus tell the demons not to speak of what he had done? Another article that, thank you, Pastor John, sent me this week, comes from an author named Greg Lanier. It's from the Gospel Coalition writing, it says, why did Jesus command others to be silent about him? We're going to look at just one aspect of this. 
He tells the outsiders, the demons, the crowd not to tell people. He tells the disciples not to tell people. He even tells us not to tell people. Now, the reason I'm only going to cover the first one is I don't know who's going to cover chapter 8. We'll see how he talks to the disciples in chapter 8 of Mark. And then the others come later on as well, so we're going to have opportunity, I think, to hear about those because there are many more opportunities coming for the men to preach, speak about demon possession and demons being cast out. But what he says here, he says, Jesus, however, directly tells others to keep quiet about his ministry. This motif of secrecy first services here in Mark. He commands the demon to be silent, and it runs throughout the gospel. Doesn't Jesus want people to know about the good news? Modern debate about this messianic secret dates way back to the 1800s. To begin, to begin, it's important to note that Jesus' Jesus's command for silence formed part of a border, excuse me, a broader pattern of simultaneously revealing and concealing who he is. On one hand, Jesus doesn't appear secretive at all. He's visibly anointing, anointed by the Holy Spirit and declared the Son of of the Father in Mark 1, verses 1, 9 through 11. He proclaims the kingdom and the gospel openly in Galilee in 1, 14 and 15. He conducts several healings in 134, and then again coming up in, in, verse, or in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 5. So it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. But he did not do those things secretly. On the other hand, Jesus sometimes does the opposite and conceals himself. Most prominent, of course, is his command at three different times, the one we just looked at, demons and unclean spirits, and the crowd. And then again, as we look, as I said earlier, talking about the disciples in chapter 8, he tells people not to speak of what he has done. Part of that is that he doesn't want the demons to speak because they're liars. People wouldn't understand that they actually have seen or heard the truth. He wants people who, people to, not people who, he wants people to understand who he is and what he can do. So as we've kind of looked at this, with evil spirits, Jesus commands them to be silent and not to make known who he is. It comes on the heels of the spirit crying out, you are the Holy One of God, the Son of God. Jesus forbids them to speak, and, be, and this is because they knew who he was. Apparently, as supernatural beings, they have insight into who Jesus really is, the divine one of God. And at this stage, Jesus either doesn't want the message to be known or he, wants, he does not want the demons revealing it. Now again, that comes from the Gospel Coalition article 
just found that a little bit interesting that there, he, he both does and doesn't want people to know who he is and that's why. He wants the right people making those statements at the right time. So, what are the three takeaways? The first one I see going on here at Calvary. Jesus calling uncommon men, excuse me, I did that every time I've read it. Jesus is calling the common man to be part of the uncommon ministry. He is calling the common man to be part of the uncommon ministry. Number two, Jesus has all of the authority, the authority that has been given him by his heavenly Father. And three, Jesus can and will defeat whatever demon you're battling. So, where are you? Do you see yourself in any of those three scenarios? I think we all three can find us in the third, all, all three, all of us can find us in the third one. There are something we battle every day. We need to give that to Jesus and allow him to be sufficient. Allow him to exert, ex, exemplify his authority in our lives. The authority of his heavenly father, of our heavenly father, to defeat that demon in our lives. And I'm thankful for the common man here at Calvary that he keeps calling to do his work, to be part of his ministry, to support what's going on here in his church, in this local body.